Hi, everybody. Today's classic comes to us from previous hosts, Katie and Sarah. Coming up on January 22nd, 2018, is the 230th birthday of George Gordon, Lord Byron. And Katie and Sarah did a podcast on him back in 2009. So not long after we came onto the show, we got a request from a listener named Alexandra to talk about, quote, Lord Byron's terribleness. And Katie and Sarah definitely get into that here. Uh, Byron was described as mad, bad, and dangerous. And a lot of disturbing stuff comes up in this episode, from animal cruelty to rape and an incestuous relationship with his half-sister. Folks should also know that there is a podcast in the archive about Byron's daughter, Ada Lovelace, as well. And at the end of this episode today, if you're considering sending us a note about how to say bosun, we're already aware. (laughs) Enjoy! Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Sarah and I are solving a bit of a Where's Waldo today. We keep doing podcast research and coming across the same personage in places we never expected to find him. No, and that's... George Gordon, Lord Byron. And first he pops up in Frankenstein, which, you know, that's obvious enough. He was there when Mary Shelley was writing it. But then he popped up in Lucrezia Borgia. Of all places. Which they don't live in nearly the same century. So it's kind of an odd match. But perhaps it's not so strange that we find him in all of these unlikely places because he had a variety of interests from travel to his brilliant poetry to a menagerie of animals. And of course, he was the most famous poet in Europe, as well as a fascinating public figure because of his utterly bizarre social life and romantic life. Oh, yes. Scandalous affairs and cruel behavior towards a variety of people. He was very good looking. He was a nobleman, but on his worst behavior for most of the time. And interestingly enough, while Byron is this world famous poet and obviously um, a, a titan of poetry today, his literary contemporaries didn't really have much respect for him. Keats had a particularly scathing quote. He called him a careless Hectorer in proud, bad verse. That's pretty cold, Keats. But today he's appreciated for what he did with his work. And um, according to, I, I pulled out my old romantic literature book. My professors would be so proud. Katie was saying it's nice when you get to, to use those, the books that you couldn't sell back. But according to Meller and Matlick, his unique expression of the consciousness and moods of early modernity is what we so appreciate today. And on that note, let's go back to his beginnings. He was the son of Captain John Byron, who was known as Mad Jack, which I think is pretty fabulous. He's a descendant of William the Conqueror, too. And his second wife, Catherine Gordon, who was a Scottish heiress. And a descendant of James I. I like this family tree thing. It's very helpful. Uh, Mad Jack liked to spend his money, so the Byron fortune was somewhat diminished by the time Little Byron came along January 22nd, 1788. He was born in London in a rented room because Catherine couldn't afford anything else, and Mad Jack had run off to France. And interestingly, he was born with a cowl over his head, which uh, some people think that pretends second sight or good luck or distinction. And the cowl, the cowl is actually sold to a naval officer, which I just thought was so disgusting. Did it work for him? No, it's supposed to... Uh, 
if you own a call, which if you buy it from a <laughs> Happy baby, birthday. Um, it's supposed to prevent drowning. But the guy who bought it drowned 12 years later. So Byron's call, not good luck. Not very helpful. <laughs> His mom took him to Aberdeen when he was young because that's where her people were. And interestingly, George had a club foot and a withered leg when he was born. And for the rest of his life, he blamed his mother for this because she wore a corset while she was pregnant. So we've got some early mother hatred going on, which is always nice in a grown man. And he's also he he has a sort of tough childhood. Um, He's sexually abused and beaten by his nanny, um, who gives him these really strict Calvinist sermons and then brings home men from the town. So it's a very... Um, uncomfortable setting for Byron to grow up in. And a bizarre mix with the very strict morals and then the very lax behavior on the other hand. Yeah. But, but he inherits a title at 10 and becomes Baron Byron of Rochdale. And he inherits this. Uh, he's he's not in line for it. He never thinks he's going to inherit this. He gets it from a great uncle, the fifth Bi- Baron Byron, who's known as William the Wicked Lord Byron. Um, he was expecting his son to inherit it, of course, and disliked his son so much that he trashes his estate, basically, chops down lots of trees. Um, his son dies before him, though, and his grandson, and so it goes to this obscure relative, Lord Byron. And because of this title, Byron also gets an estate called Newstead Abbey, which is used to be grand, but at this point is practically in ruins. And of course, they don't have the fortune to repair it, and nor does the other Byron's estate. It's near Sherwood Forest, too, which I thought was so perfect. Very somehow. romantic. Yes. yes. Um, so Byron's sent to school in London in 1801. And a little bit after that, he has his first love. Um, he falls in love with a cousin, Mary Chaworth, who lives on an estate near uh, near his own. And he's so in love with her that he refuses to go back to school at oh, first. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's older than him. She's a few years older. She's already um, engaged or about to be. And um, he just, he sets her up as his ideal of unattainable love. This is where the romantic streak in Byron begins to show itself. But also kind of sad because he only gets over her when he overhears her mocking his his lameness of his foot. Cruelty from yeah. children. It's also about the time when he starts his homosexual love affairs, which for a long time throughout history were somewhat suppressed. It's reported he has sexual relationships with Newstead servants of both sexes at this time. He has a servant named William Fletcher, who's by his side from the age of 16 until almost his death. And William is a very good-looking man. And he also strikes up a, this is his quote, violent though pure love and passion for a guy named John Edelston, who's a chorister. And Edelston gives him a Cornelian as a present. And Byron wrote lots of poems about him. And that's the person most people think of when they think of Byron's bisexual reputation. It started with John. And also, further fueling Byron's reputation, when he's a teenager, he meets his half-sister, Augusta Byron. They didn't know each other as children at all. Um, they meet when he's about 15, and it's suggested that they later have their own sexual relationship. So, Oh, yes. Augusta will come back up. Yeah. You'll hear about her some more. So you can see everything starting, starting to come together to make Byron this uh, 
rascally character he ends up being. Well, and some of it's confusing. You had mentioned something about the guy who was leasing Newstead. Yeah, Lord Grey, who was leasing Newstead until Byron reached his majority, um, is thought to have made some sort of sexual advance at the young Byron that so shocked him that the two break uh, and don't don't talk to each other again, even though Byron's mother is very much a fan of Lord Grey and tries to reconcile them. Byron wants nothing to do with him. Well, and since Byron sort of hates his mother, that would actually make more sense. So at this point, he's got a mother he doesn't like, a father who's abandoned him, abusive relationships, and, and some other... And who commits suicide. Right. And some other confusing personal relationships. But in 1805, he's off to Trinity College in Cambridge, where he seems to have a pretty good time racking up lots of debt. He had, what, 12,000 pounds in debt before he even reached his majority. his majority? I don't even know how you do which that. Which I think is 21. So that's, I mean, there aren't credit cards. I don't know what Byron would have done on a modern college campus. I have no idea. <laughs> but this is actually where he'd met John Edelston that I, me- that I mentioned before. Yeah. And this is also when he starts writing his poetry. Yeah, he writes some early poems and prints them in a volume called Fugitive Pieces. And um, he also makes his best friend at Cambridge, John Cam Hobhouse, who gets him into politics, something that as a future lord, um, he'll play a role in. And Hobhouse is his best friend for life, truly BFF. He's the best man at his wedding. He travels with him all around the world, and they have a falling out for a while, but he ends up being loyal to the end. And his diaries are part of the reason we know so much about Byron. Yeah, and my favorite Byron at Cambridge story that just shows how um, how bad he was, but in kind of a funny way at this point at least, um, Cambridge bars students from having dogs on on campus. And so Byron chooses to have a tame bear as his pet. And Cambridge can't do anything about it because they don't have any <laughs> rules about it. And um, he even suggests in a letter to a friend that his bear companion should sit for a fellowship. So Byron has a has a long love for animals. He really likes dogs. He keeps his bear with him when he moves back to Newstead. Um, he actually has dogs as companions almost until his death. I really want a bear now, but I have a feeling our boss would not go for that. No, we might have to ask bear. him a little bit later. This is also <laughs> around the time his first volume of poetry gets published, House of Idleness, in 1807. Yeah, and this is um, obviously a deeper work than the fugitive pieces that were published earlier. This is actually a complete volume. And uh, we probably wouldn't know much about the House of Idleness except that He's mocked for them in the Edinburgh Review, and he writes a comeback couplet satire called English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, which gets him his first recognition. Oh, the cutthroat world of poetry. Yeah. In 1809, Byron reaches his majority and takes his seat in the House of Lords. And then he and Hobhouse go on their grand tour. And again, I have been deprived of my own grand tour. (laughs) So if someone would like to send me on one, please let me know. But they go traveling all over the place. They start in Portugal and move to Spain, Greece, and Albania. And on their grand tour, Byron and Hobhouse get involved in a little bit of political intrigue. The Ionian Islands had been restored to the French, but the English wanted them, and so did Ali Pasha, who is not known as the greatest guy in Greek history. So Byron and Hobhouse 
get used by a guy named Spiridion Foresti. He entertains them and then mentions, you know, why don't you go to Albania and see Ali Pasha? That would be lovely because he wants to sweeten his own deal. So as Byron and Hobhouse go off toward Albania, the English come toward the Ionian Islands. And they were really upset, I think, when they both realized that they They'd weren't as sophisticated used. as they thought they had been. You can just imagine them like finishing Cambridge and thinking they're pretty, pretty clever. And yeah, publish their poetry, publish yeah. some satire, and then go and get used by some guy named Spiridion. And around the same time, Byron starts Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which is one of the works he's best known for his, um, his oriental odyssey, um, that's very much semi-autobiographical. And I would like to interject with no segue whatsoever that at this time he also shoots an eagle, which is one of <laughs> the, my favorite facts I found. And there are so many of these. Which, we could have researched but, him for days. That doesn't gel with my animal lover point from earlier, Katie. He also decapitated a goose <laughs> at around the same time. So he loves them, but sometimes he kills them. Sometimes you do kill the things you love. And during this trip, Byron also has many, many more affairs with both men and women. And he meets Niccolo Giraud, who he will later mention in a will of his, leaving his money, but it ends up being revoked. And while they're gone, their friends back home are writing both of them letters in code about what's happening to gay men in England. At the time, you could be hanged for the quote-unquote crime of homosexual behavior. So it's possible that he and Hobhouse also had some sort of intimate relationship, but whatever was going on, they were kept abreast of the news in England. And this will become important a little bit later with Byron's marriage. But for now, we'll head back to England. Yeah, so they go back to London in July of 1811, and Byron just misses his mother's death, um, but quickly gets to work in the House of Lords and gives his first speech in 1812, which was urging tolerance against riotous Nottingham weavers. Um, you could get the death penalty at the time for breaking your frames, basically. And his second speech is about Irish Catholic rights. So he's got these very liberal sort of ideas. Right, social reform. And um, one month after this first speech, the first two cantos of Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which he was working on on the Grand Tour, are published. And Byron later writes that, I awoke one morning and found myself famous. And that is one of his most famous quotes about how one day everything can just change. Yeah. And after this, he begins an affair with a married woman named Lady Caroline Lamb, who has read Child Harold and decides she has to meet this guy. She's and she writes him a fan letter. Fan. <laughs> oh, yes. She adores him. And he meets her and he's not too impressed by what he sees. She's really not his type. But they end up carrying on this scandalous, torrid, passionate affair. And she almost leaves her husband for him. Yeah. Um, Byron's friend, John Hobhouse, encourages him to not elope with her and sort of narrowly prevents this enormous scandal. Which is probably a good idea because things were a little too hot and heavy down toward the it's, insane side. Yeah. When, when he breaks it off with her, Lady Carolyn organizes a bonfire where the village girls congregate and burn an effigy of Byron <laughs> And then they dance around the fire and toss in copies of his letters to her and his gifts, little gold trinkets. And she's so worried that this is going to make people think she's crazy and even write some stuff about it. But, I mean, it kind of does. <laughs> I don't know. If you wanted to throw a bonfire, I would probably come. I would even burn people in effigy if necessary. <laughs> it ends up not looking very good. But they 
they continue a correspondence, interestingly enough, that turns increasingly literary. And she even publishes a book, this real kiss and tell novel called Glenarvan, um, which just exposes the character of Byron to the world. Well, and she's still keeping up her crazy antics. She completely freaks out, to use scientific terminology. (laughs) And she creates these really public scenes. She suddenly shows up at his house, often in disguise, and creates scenes there. She writes some crazy letters. Hobhouse writes in his diaries that once she came in disguise to the house and then tried to grab a sword and stab herself, and they managed to stop her. And she also is said to have sent her pubic hair to him in a letter, which... (laughs) Isn't something I would want from an ex, in case any of you were listening. She lost a bunch of weight, and he had had a really mean quote about how he was being haunted by a skeleton because she'd become very emaciated by this time. And I kind of feel bad for Miss Lamb. And she's the one who had labeled him mad, bad, and dangerous to know, which is is probably the most famous description of him. Yeah. So she really kicks off this string of sort of unfortunate lovers he has before his marriage, though. He takes up with Lady Oxford. And this made me so angry. She's the mother of six, which is not the part that made me angry. (laughs) But Byron shares Caroline's letters with Lady Oxford. So, yeah, reading the ex's letters and then even lets her respond to some of them and sign her initials at the bottom, which, of course, devastates poor Caroline back home. And he's taking up with Lady Frances Webster. And around this time, probably also starting a love affair with his half-sister, Augusta, who is married to Colonel George Lee. And some say that her child, Elizabeth Medora Lee, is really Lord Byron's. So during this, he's writing all of these gloomy tales like the Corsair and the Jower, um, these sort of oriental um I guess, escapes for him, for his reckless love life. And what to do when you're having too many affairs and you don't know what to do? (laughs) Get married. Take the straight and narrow (laughs) and go ahead and get married. It's going to work out really well. Maybe you can sense the sarcasm. The person he decides to marry is Lady Caroline Lamb's cousin, Annabella Milbank, who is absolutely nothing like him. He could not have picked someone more unsuited to him if he tried. She loves math and she fancies herself. <laughs> and morals, a according to your outline. <laughs> yes, I have. She likes math and morals. And um, they get married and things aren't good from the start. There's so this sort weird. of bad omen, too. And Byron is a superstitious man, so he really doesn't like this. He gives her a wedding ring that was his mother's, and it's too big, so she ties it with a black ribbon. And um, he's horrified by this and makes her take it off. And he's also he also thinks he's spotted the Black Friar of Newstead, his ancestral home, uh, a month before the wedding. And the Black Friar is supposed to portend bad luck for the house Byron. And things just get even more bizarre. Lady Byron has their daughter, his only legitimate child, Augusta Ada, in December of 1815. Which, eh, I don't know about that. And apparently he paced the hallways all night with loaded guns when they were getting married. And when they have the baby, does something even weirder. He smashes bottles with a poker while she's being born, which... I just saw that, like, alone. There was no (laughs) No explanation for it. Um, So I don't know what was going through Byron's mind during his marriage, but the two were not a good match. No, and Annabella leaves 16 months after they're married and then accuses him not only of incest with his half-sister Augusta 
and mistreatment, but also of anally raping her two days after she had the baby. So his so reputation is officially shot to It's hell. shot. That's too much for um, for his British public to accept. So he goes abroad in April 1816, actually never to return to England. So self-imposed exile starts in Switzerland, and Hobhouse comes with him for the very beginning. And this is when, if you listen to our, our Frankenstein podcast... podcast he ends up in a ghostwriting competition, which Mary Shelley gets Frankenstein out of, and also takes up with Claire Claremont. Who he had actually started an affair with in England. She, uh, you want to say she followed him? She actually goes ahead of him, knowing he'll, he'll be there soon enough. <laughs> um, he really has a low opinion of Claire Claremont. He calls her a foolish girl in a letter to his sister. He basically makes it sound like he couldn't avoid her. She was so into him, there was nothing he could do. Which is ridiculous because this didn't keep him from sleeping with her and conceiving a child with her yes. who is born when they leave in January 1817. She's born Alba and later her name is changed to Allegra, which is always that's kind of a strange thing to do. But. I think so, too. And her life is so sad. Things yeah. don't go well for little Allegra. He says he will not give Claire Claremont money to raise the child, which he could easily have done. He had the money to do that then. This probably has to do with his low opinion of her. Yeah. So he's just not going to do that. He doesn't trust her. So instead, he takes custody and he won't tell Claire anything about her. And then he ends handing her off to a bunch of other people, and she ends up in a convent school where she dies at she age dies five, at five, and no one visited her but Percy Shelley. Shelley. Percy Shelley, yeah. Not even her parents. So, so sad story there, and another example of Byron's cruelty with women, which will be a running theme for a little <laughs> while. So at the end of this fateful summer where Frankenstein is written and um, Claire is pregnant, uh, the Shelleys leave for England and Claire has her baby and Byron and Hophouse leave for Italy. And this is my favorite part of my notes. They see a triple guillotining and they climb onto the roof of St. Peter's. Fun sightseeing. Again, I didn't add any context there really, but... <laughs> They had a great time, and Cobhouse wrote all about it in his diaries. And Byron really trumps up his life during this period. Um, in his letters to his friends, he claims that he has made love to a hundred or more women during Carnival of 1817. But if you think about the context, this this is a bad time for Byron um, because of his familial estrangement and his bad reputation, his growing debt. If he was in that much debt as a minor – Imagine how bad it's gotten. Um, so he's trying to make things seem better than they really are. And he takes up with a woman named Mariana Sagatti, who's his landlord's wife. And then later he moves on to Margarita Cogni, a baker's wife, who he refers to as the gentle tigress, mm. which a detail I really liked. And those aren't the only affairs that are going on. As being Byron, there are plenty. But Newstead Abbey is sold in 1818. And that He's pays off the bulk of his debts. For, for several years. He initially didn't want to part with it, but finally is convinced that it's the only way he can he can make it. And he also writes the fourth canto of Child Harold at about this time. And Beppo, which is more of a, it's less of this gloomy sort of oriental epic style 
and which marks a change in his writing for a yeah, while. And it sets him up for writing his most famous work, which I keep thinking is Don Juan and Sarah keeps insisting because of the rhyme scheme was Don Juan. That's what I learned. Don Juan because he sets up the rhymes in the poem so that you're forced to mispronounce the foreign words. So I may just have shown myself as the worst English major ever. <laughs> I apologize to my college professors. But he has a lot more fun writing this one than he, he does. does with his earlier work. And like a lot of his earlier works, it has thinly disguised people from his life. The The mother in the poem, Donna Inez, is a complete a complete shadow for Annabella, his wife. She, he even writes, in short, she was a walking calculation. Ooh. Uh, somebody who's really smart and clever, but that's kind of presented in a bad, a bad way. And he also talks about a quarrel between a husband and wife in the work and all the nosy people who think they understand what the problem was, but they don't really know what they're talking about. Oh, yes. He's conceived of himself by this time as being very misunderstood. And he's really an editor's worst nightmare, too. <laughs> Since Sarah and I are editors, we took a lot of we, – we empathize with this position. Yeah. In a letter to John Murray, who is the publisher of the first two cantos, he writes that, I will have none of your damned cutting and slashing. So – Oh, I would, I would really hate to get, I would really hate to get something like that from one of my writers. That's when we go downstairs and buy some peanut butter M&Ms. <laughs> but around the same time, also Byron's gained a lot of weight, which Sarah, you said you remembered hearing. I had always learned in English that he battled with his weight for his whole life and would yo-yo diet. And uh, I didn't see a lot on that except that he had gained a lot during this time, and that he was a pretty pudgy little kid. So if you know any more about that, please email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We'd love to hear more about it. He also meets Countess Teresa Gamba Guiccioli, who is either 17 or 19. We've come across a couple different ages. But she's married to an older count. 60-year-old And she's young and beautiful, and she loves Byron deeply and knew him intimately. And she thinks she understands him like no one else. She believes he's a good man, and he's misunderstood, and has somehow incurred this terrible reputation. I don't think it occurred to her that maybe she just saw one side of him and everyone else saw the other sides. But she writes a book called Lord Byron's Life in Italy to vindicate him. And he becomes her cavalier servant, which is the gentleman-in-waiting, but basically it's a socially accepted lover. Uh, he rents an apartment from her and her husband where Byron, the animal lover, I'm going to stick to that side, not to the shooting and <laughs> the eagle. eagle shooting side. <laughs> um, he installs 10 horses, 8 dogs, 3 monkeys, 5 cats, an eagle. An unshot one. A crow and a falcon. Um, and eventually Teresa and her husband separate. But um, it's Byron and Teresa's relationship is not affected by that. He actually gets pretty close to her family, her father and brother, who are members of the secret society, the Carbonari, uh, which has the aim to free Italy from Austrian rule. And it's interesting that this English lord gets this in through his Italian lover in the secret society. But he gets really into it in his... I, I sort of feel like his early interest in politics, which fall by the wayside, is rekindled by this. Right. It grows much stronger at this mm-hmm. point. It seems like he's put 
not that he's not still sleeping with other people, but a little bit of that. The frenetic pace has slowed and he's getting much more interested in what else he could do. Yeah. And his relationship with Teresa is more like a marriage Homing than to... anything else he's had. So at this time, he's hanging out a little bit more with Shelley and they go to a villa by the sea with SAS Lee Hunt and they start working on this radical journal called The Liberal. And this is really the only big thing we found about during his life, during this period. During this period, maybe because he's actually got a relatively calm life during this period. Um, but this is when Shelley drowns. And um, Byron keeps on working with Lee Hunt on the liberal, even though he becomes less and less interested in it. But he moves from working on this journal, The Liberal, to getting involved in the cause of Greece in their war for independence. And some have said that he would have been the king of Greece if things had actually gone through as they were supposed to. It is a very bold claim, but, you know, I'm willing to think that he could do it. And around the same time, he meets a guy named Lucas Calandritsanos. I'm positive I'm not pronouncing that correctly, who is part of his little ragtag army that... Byron had gotten together in this Greek liberation thing, and he adored him, but his love was unrequited. And Lucas was with him when he died, which was at age, what, 36? 36 or 37. Um, Byron was a very, very much committed to the Greek cause against the Turks. He loaned his money. He commanded a personal brigade of soldiers. Um, he was He was pretty brave and a Greek hero. And Byron contracted his fatal illness when he was en route to a Greek campaign. He gets rheumatic fever by April, and he dies on Easter Sunday in 1824. And his memoirs were burned by Thomas More. And I wish, I wish, wish, wish they were still around because I'd love Why to read them. Why do people always have to burn the memoirs? Because they don't want you to know their secrets. <laughs> and Byron, it, it wasn't very clear if he wanted to be buried where he died or go back to England. But regardless of his wishes, he was sent back to England and buried at Newstead. What you have to tell the dog story, which <laughs> you told me earlier. <laughs> he, when he was a young man, he initially set up a pact for his favorite dog, Boatswain, uh, who had died of rabies. And an old man who who worked worked the grounds to all be buried together. And later <laughs> when the old man was asked about it, he was like, well, if if Lord Byron is going to be here, okay, but I'm not sure I want to be buried alone with the dog. <laughs> so none of that happened. The dog is buried outside Lord Byron in the crypt. So now you know that you can make pacts with people about where you'd like to be buried. Random people in your life. I'm Byron is interested them. in it, apparently. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this Saturday classic. Since this is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar during the course of the show, that may be obsolete now. So here is our current contact information. We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're at Missed in History all over social media. That is our name on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 